We're beginning a new series today in 1 Thessalonians, so if you'll open your Bibles there with me, we'll read chapter 1 this morning. Uh, the Thessalonian letters have a reputation for having a primary focus on eschatology, but that's not really the only focus of the letters. The Thessalonian letters have some other themes in them. The uh, letters both have some encouragements during times of persecution because the early church faced a lot of persecution. Uh, the church throughout all of history has faced a lot of persecution. And in fact, most of the times when there wasn't a lot of persecution, it was because the church wasn't being much of a church, but had fallen into apostasy, and therefore there wasn't a need for persecution by the world. Uh, so primarily there's that. Also, Paul spends a fair amount of time having to defend his leadership, and his conduct, because he is under attack. Paul was attacked by pretty much the Jews and the Gentiles both throughout all of his ministry. And we see a little of that happening to John in our last message. You remember in Third John, he talks about how Diotrephes was speaking wicked nonsense against them. Uh, leaders, people who want to be leaders in the church. So anybody who wants to be a leader in the world, wants a base for that leadership. They want to find something to use, and they often will try to use the church. They want to use the church as a jumping off point, and they'll try and take over the church. And one of the ways they do that is then by trashing the, lead, the current leaders, pushing themselves up as being greater leaders and worming their way in and taking over the church and using it as a basis for their religion. All of the cults have done that throughout history, and men who want to be great will do that, and they attack the leaders. And so Paul has to defend himself against these people who want to take over. Uh, beyond that... Both First and Second Thessalonians have some teachings about the basic Christian life, fulfilling your duties and responsibilities as a Christian. And then they both have a, an emphasis on eschatology. Eschatology is fairly important in the Christian life. We'll talk a little bit about that today because pretty much every chapter of First Thessalonians has some mention of eschatology. Now, the main part of eschatology is later in the book. 
chapters 4, chapter 5. Because the beginning of the book is mostly about, well, the first chapter is his praises and thanksgivings for the Thessalonians. Chapter 2 and 3 is his, really his defense of his ministry. And then chapter 4 and 5 get into the more practical and theological aspects of it. And so we'll, it'll be a while before we get to the eschatology. But before we look at that, before we read the chapter, why don't we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, ask for your strength, Lord, as we examine it, your grace to us as we uh, consider the things that you have in it, and pray, Lord, for mercies on us as we consider these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I think I'll need my glasses today. That's why I couldn't find anything. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. For you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, For you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So the apostle, he begins this letter with his standard you know, letter introduction, normal Greek formula, and Paul's general practice, uh, we've covered this in the past. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it in the, this morning. He calls on God to give uh, an increase of grace and peace to them. And he calls on, really, the, the church, calls on God in his own church to give them grace and peace. And it's his usual greeting to any of the churches that he's written to. We see Paul's writings. It's not simply an empty platitude, but it's his heart desire. It's his calling in life to bless the churches, to see them grow. Uh, It's his great concern in life to see a positive impact upon the churches. And so he's calling, you know, your kingdom come, Lord. And he's calling to the people, may God give you an increase in grace and an increase in peace. When he moves on to his letter, 
And it's his normal behavior to start his letters with his thanksgiving to them. Now, there's one exception to this, and that's the letter of Galatians. And it was written urgently to a church that was in the throes of apostasy. And Paul sadly had no thanksgiving for them as they were turning from the true gospel of Jesus Christ to another gospel, which was no gospel at all. But other than that, Paul normally begins his letter with thanksgiving for the people he's writing to. And again, it's not really him adopting some kind of conventional practice, but starting out with the things that are of greatest importance to him personally. Uh, Before he gets to the issues that he wanted to write to, he says, let's rejoice together with the goodness of God, with what God is doing amongst you. Let us rejoice in your faith and in your virtues. And we see he does that starting in verse 2. Now notice, he's giving thanks to God. He's not thanking them. He's not thanking their leaders. He's not praising their personal greatness. He's giving praise to God for them. A man often says, praise me more. Praise my greatness. Say how great I am. But the Christian understands both the vanity, the meaningless of that, and the danger of it. Paul explains it here a little later in the chapter, but his thanksgiving here and in the middle of Romans, he says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching that was committed to you, Romans 6.17. We were slaves to sin, and our obedience is what we're being praised for, But that obedience, that freedom from our sin, is what matters. And as John told us, we walk in the light, as he is in the light, and have fellowship with one another by the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from our sin. You know, we've been cleansed by God, and the worthiness of being praised is from God. The praise belongs to God. He's the one who delivered us from the domain of darkness transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. And likewise, it's God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And so God is the one he's really thanking here. And it's a thanksgiving to God the Father. Now, Paul says that he makes mention of them constantly in his prayers constantly or without seeking, ceasing, or the word there can mean without intermission. You know, he doesn't stop. Every time he prays, he prays for them. The implication here is perhaps that Paul, or Paul and company, you know, the people he works with in his ministry, have a prayer list, and when they pray, they go through the whole list, and the Thessalonians are on it, And diligently, when they pray, they pray for the Thessalonians amongst all the others. Every time they pray, without fail, they remember to pray for those people. To praise God for what's happened to them in the past. To praise God for what's happening to them now. To pray for them. To continue steadfastly to pray for their future. Paul mentions this practice a number of times. And I want to hit on that because I I think this is a very important thing for us to consider. Romans, the beginning of Romans, chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. 
He says, I thank my God, Jesus Christ, for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So again, without ceasing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 4-8 I give my thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sustains you to the end, guiltless in the day of Jesus Christ. So again, I always give thanks for you. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 17. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love to all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So for the Ephesians, the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, I give, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So again, he remembers them always, and he has specific things that he's remembering these people for, these churches for. Colossians, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed the whole world that is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also has among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So the Colossians, Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, every one of these churches, he mentions that he prays for them all the time. It's like he has a prayer list prayer book, a list of churches, a list of people, information about them that he can pray for. And he remembers them every time he goes to prayer. And he goes through that list. I remember when I was in Cincinnati, they have a prayer list. It's like two pages. And it has, in small print, every prayer item, every ministry Every church that has sent things in, all of the missions that they have, and updates about them. It's a, it's a folded page. 
and it has a lot of stuff on it. And they try on Wednesday night. They probably have half hour to 45 minutes of prayer. They break it. The whole church breaks up into like five or six sections and they each take a piece so that the church can pray for everything in half an hour to make sure it gets covered. And it's useful to have that because it's good to pray for all of these things. It's worthwhile to bring them to memory. Now, we don't have to have very long and elaborate prayers. You remember what Jesus said. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. A simple prayer is enough. A few words, remembering them, thanking God, praising God, asking for what's needed. That's all we need. God knows what they need. God knows what we need. But he wants us to ask. Just be sincere and be persistent in prayer. Paul certainly is an example of that. In verse 4, Paul gives thanks for the matters that matter most here. And in particular, he's giving thanks for the matters that he's going to be talking about in this letter. He says, for your work of faith, meaning the work produced by faith, Remember, Paul's been very emphatic in all of his writings. Salvation is by faith, apart from works. And the Bible as a whole teaches that the works are the result of your faith, not the cause of your faith, or not the cause of your salvation. And that's Paul's gospel. When Paul was arrested and being, before he was sent to Rome, he's on trial in the end of the book of Acts, chapter 26, And he says to King Agrippa that he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision that he'd had. But he declared first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. And that was his gospel. That having been saved, you should then do good works. Jesus said, you make the tree good and the fruit will be good. Make the tree bad, the tree will be bad. The tree is known by its fruit. The tree doesn't become good by having enough good fruit. They produce good fruit because the tree had been made good. In other words, you know, the change of heart has to happen and then good works will come. And that's how you know that you've been saved, and that's important in this Thanksgiving here, because he talks about that a little later, that they had produced the evidence that they were saved, and that evidence is what made him filled with such joy. So they had, Paul was thankful to them that they were doing good works because their good works demonstrated that they had faith, that they had been saved. And he says also that they had their labor of love. And the labor of love, meaning the, not meaning those little acts of mercy we do without expecting a reward, but rather that they were laboring with the true love, the, all of their strength and all of their heart and all of their soul because of their true love for God. 
Uh, we love because he first loved us. And we see what kind of love the Father has for us, that we're being called children of God. 1 John 3, 1. You know, we have that love from God that is so great that we respond with a great love ourselves. And that labor of love then is that full, honest, sincere devotion to God that we will see in this book as well as in all of Scripture should be the testimony of the Christian. That we have that special, unique attitude that we give everything for God. All for him. And then the third thing he mentions that he's thankful for is their their steadfastness or the endurance of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this hope is based on the certainty of the forgiveness of their sins in Christ. Because once we were alienated and hostile in mind, we were doing evil deeds, and he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed we continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister, Colossians 1, 21-23. Steadfastness or endurance and hope of our salvation, that we don't lose track of that and give up on that. And so Paul is thankful that they have shown that and demonstrated it in spite of the persecutions that they face and the trials that they have. And so he's been thankful to God for them. And continuing on in verse 4, 5, and 6, he's thankful for the evidence of their conversion. He starts by identifying them as his brothers, his fellow elect. You know, for a Jew like Paul, identifying Gentiles as his brothers was a great deal. Remember Peter, when the centurion Cornelius was sent to him, you know, he had that great vision of the unclean animals being lowered down by heaven. He's like, what? Arise, kill and eat, but those are unclean. I've never touched anything unclean. And he, he ends up going with the men and going into Cornelius' house and he says, well, you yourselves know how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call a person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. May I ask then why you have sent for me? Acts 10, 28 and 29. Originally, Paul would have had a very similar view as a Pharisee, and he would not have been very comfortable but now he says you're chosen or elect of God to these people. He says you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ are put on Christ as neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all is one in Christ. If you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Through 29. He calls this a mystery, the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, Ephesians 3 6. 
You know, we are now all united together in Christ as part of one body in him, one people chosen by God. And that is how he addresses them now, brothers, people he never would have been able to speak to before he was saved. Believers and beloved brothers in Christ. And he continues on with how the gospel came to them with power, proving that they were indeed God's elect. That's interesting. Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, was going about preaching the truth of God in a time when the New Testament hadn't been written. In fact, he's writing this letter to them, and this is part of the New Testament. How did they know to receive the letter? How did they know to receive his teaching? Paul is preaching these things with a unique authority and power that other men did not have. God had to authenticate the teaching that the Jewish Messiah had come, that the things Paul was saying were true, and he was doing this with signs and wonders so that the people would know to listen. And that was the way they had learned in the Old Testament, not just that there would be signs and wonders, but also that the person would be teaching in agreement with the Old Testament's Remember, if a prophet or a dreamer who dreams dreams arises among you, Moses told them, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes to pass, and says, and the man says, let's go to worship other gods that you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer, for the Lord your God is testing you to know if you love the Lord with all your heart. Deuteronomy 13. You know, the sign was there, but also the agreement with Scripture. That's why the Bereans were counted so good, because they went to Scripture to double-check what Paul was saying. To the teaching and the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because they have no dawn, Isaiah 8.20. But he had these miraculous powers given by God that he would show them the gospel, and they would respond to that gospel. And I think that's what's being discussed here, that it came with great power, spiritual power, that he had uniquely in his preaching that other men would not have had. Uh, This was brought up at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. When they had assembled together, Paul and Barnabas spoke, and the assembly fell silent. They listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders had been done among the Gentiles, Acts 15:12. There aren't many accounts about them, but there is one about Ephesus, and it's, I want to relate it. It's found in Acts 19, the first seven verses. Well, Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, he found some disciples, and they said, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And he said, oh, John baptized a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who came after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. 
And there were about 12 men. So we can suppose something like this happened, and that was evidence that the Spirit had come on them, and the Spirit coming on them was evidence, of course, that they had believed. And that proved both the gospel's trustworthiness and the truthfulness that the people had been converted. And I think that's what Paul is referring to in this passage. <coughs> That was something that happened then to testify to the scriptures, to the truth that Paul was preaching. And I don't believe that continues on to this day. Uh, Counterfeit miracles today are pretty common amongst the charismatics. But if you compare their teachings to the scriptures, it ain't happening. They're not true. Um, Paul points out then that they became fellow sufferers with him and within the gospel. In verse 6, fellow sufferers with him and with the Lord in great joy. Uh, we see what he's talking about, I think, in Acts chapter 5, where the apostles became fellow sufferers with the Lord. Uh, it's a bit long, but I want to read the story because it really helps us to see the picture of what the early church should have been like. You remember the high priest rose up, Acts 5, 17 and following, and all who were with him, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And the high priest came and all who were with him. And they called together the council on all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But the officers came. They did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now then the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them and about what would come to, about what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you are, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Of course, they said, Let his blood be upon us and not upon our children. But Peter and the apostle answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses of these things. <coughs> and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But the Pharisees in the but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, that was Paul's teacher too, by the way, teacher of the law held 
in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking of man is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And after they left the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching or preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And so they were facing persecution from the Jews. But notice they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And that was the attitude of the early church. That to be hated for Christ was something to be rejoicing for. And it's important to remember that. Paul preached that all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 James said, Count it a joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith, faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you will be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2-4. And Peter says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4:13. That is what it means to be a Christian, to share in the sufferings of Christ. These people were not hiding their lamp under a basket, hoping nobody would notice them. They were suffering for Christ. They received the gospel with great persecutions and suffering. And they continued on to be a witness. A lamp on its stand, a city on a hill. And that brings us to the next verses Paul was quite thankful for their transformation, which had become a witness really to the whole world. Verses 7 and following. They had become an example to the believers throughout the whole region and really the whole world. I remember years ago when I interned at a church, at the end of my internship, the pastor went on vacation and left me in charge more or less. The session was in charge, but I mean, I did the day-to-day things. And once you know, one of the old grandmas, the day he leaves, I get a call. She's in the hospital. They don't think she's going to make it. She had diabetes. She was on her deathbed with heart problems related to diabetes. I went in there every day to visit her. She was They had her on um, diuretics, and she was unable to respond. 
after a few days, they changed the medications and she was able to talk and I would visit with her and sit with her for a while. She was energetic, telling everybody she was looking forward to being with the Lord in a few days. She was witnessing to the doctors and the nurses and the visitors and her children and her friends about how excited she was to be able to go and be with the Lord. And it became the talk of the floor, how happy she was that she was going to go and see the Lord soon. She was a bold witness for God. And when you think about that, that's really what it means to be a Christian, no matter what you're facing, your witness. Other people saw the conversion of these people. They saw their life. They saw how they had changed and been transformed. And they were imitating them. As they had, Paul told them, we were warned in John, 3 John, don't imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Whoever does what is good is from God. 3 John, verse 11. Paul said, I urge you then, be imitators of me, 1 Corinthians 4.16. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. Be imitators of God as beloved children, Ephesians 5.1. We should imitate the good, imitate people who imitate God. You know, follow the leadership of those who are following Christ doing the good things that they are doing. Suffering as they suffer is what he's really saying. And doing the works that God's people do. Now, we are not following the sinful things. (laughs) Don't imitate evil, as John told us. Imitate what is good. Uh, Others were reporting about this. Paul says, we don't have to tell anybody about you. They're telling us what you're doing, that sharing your testimony with us. And it becomes so famous and such an encouragement to God's people that instead of Paul going around telling people about the great things the Thessalonians did when he he visited them, they were telling him. A famous transformation. They used to be idolaters. It was a very idolatrous world, the Greek world. You know, it was the great sin of their day. I guess the great sin of our day would be worldliness and greed. The great sin of their day was idolatry. Everybody was an idolater. And these people had turned away from idolatry. They had overcome the prevalent sin of their day. And it was so obvious to everyone around them. These people are not like the rest of us. Look what has happened in their lives. They've given up their idols. They are no longer one of us. And people knew it. And people saw it. And it was a great thing in the eyes of the church, a great thing in the eyes of the people of God, and worthy of being praised, and worthy of being talked about. Did you see how the people of God in Thessalonica have changed? What an amazing thing. What an encouragement. And you see the persecutions they're suffering because of it. Both the Jews and the Gentiles persecute them. 
What a wonderful thing it is to see their faith and their patience and their endurance. And not only that, but they're waiting patiently. They're not saying, when is this going to get better and when are we going to be rich? When are we going to be happy? When are we going to get all the things God has promised us in this life and in this world? No, they're waiting patiently, it says in verse 10, for his son to come from heaven and deliver us from the wrath to come. They were waiting for that eschatological hope. They had their hope in the right place. Not in today, not in the here and now, not in happiness today, in health today, in money today, in a big house today, in a in Mercedes Benz today, not in all the worldly things people care about. They had their hope in Christ, their hope in his return, their hope in eternity. And it's not a hope that's a hope of defeated resignation. Oh, got to put up one more day. Uh, maybe I'll live, maybe I won't. Oh, no. It's not a hope of misery. Oh, everybody who wants to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So miserable, when will this be over? It's not that kind of hope. It's a hope born of the certainty that Christ will return. A certainty that he is coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Revelation 22.12. It is a hope that there will be an eternity, and in eternity Christ will reign and righteousness will reign, and God's people will receive a reward. And it will be better than everything this world has to offer. You could live a hundred lifetimes as Bill Gates, and it would be meaningless compared to an eternity with Christ. Our hope in his return, his re- the resurrection, and eternity is where we are. And without that hope, we have nothing. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people to be most pitied, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:19. People who put their hope in this world... who say they are Christians, Paul says they are to be, of all people, most pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Our hope is in eternity. We'll be looking at that more in the weeks to come because 1 Thessalonians in particular has a lot to say about that in chapters 4 and 5. Paul has a lot of thankful things to say about the Thessalonians. Of course, he is not writing them just a happy letter. He has some corrections to make. He has some teachings to give. That's always the case. Paul, the apostle, does not write happy letters. He writes instructional letters to people who need help. And that help for them is help for us. 
and a joy to read as we learn and grow in our faith and in our practice. And we receive encouragements from him and from the Lord and through the Holy Spirit. And I hope this letter will be a blessing to us, as all of Scripture should be. So let us go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the faith of the Thessalonians and the encouragements that Paul gets from them and that we get from hearing about their faith and thinking about our own. And pray, Lord, that we would be worthy of such praise as well, that, Lord, our faith would be an encouragement to others, that our faith would be spoken of well, that our faith would be worthy of imitating. And, Lord, that as we study through this book, that there would be many things that would give us joy, many things that we can learn, many things that will cause us to think, and many things that will cause us to grow in our faith and in our practice, that we might improve our sanctification, that we might improve our ability to glorify you and to encourage one another. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.